Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we conclude our series in the book of Genesis called Confident Faith today. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 24, verses 61 to 25, verse 11, with a message titled, How the Gospel Came to Us. I have a troubling memory I'd like to talk about. You know, one Sunday after preaching, a high school student in my congregation approached me. He said he was doubting the Bible. He told me of a conversation he had with a fellow class member, and that class member had said he wasn't into the Bible. Instead, he was into fantasy regarding Klingons. And uh, if you don't know who they are, they're in the Star Trek space series. Now, that wouldn't have been troubling to me. I mean, after all, he's a teenager. But what this student from my church said next troubled me. He said, the more I've thought about it, the more I think that perhaps you can just make your choice as to what you want to believe in. Well, fair enough, I guess. You can believe in whatever you want. There's no law demanding you believe in the Bible. But before he left, I had a series of questions for him. How much did he actually know about the Bible? I know, you see now why I was troubled. He went to my church. What did he actually learn from me? Now, I can easily defend myself on this point. I pastored a very large church, and I I didn't recognize that young man. And I I don't know if he only attended off and on or whether he had actually availed himself of the many resources that we had provided as a church. So I can defend myself in terms of everything I did to make the nature of the Bible plain to him. But here's what troubles me. Whenever we teach the Bible or preach the Bible or read the Bible— or think about the Bible, or tell our kids about the Bible. Wherever we do that, without being mindful that when we read the Bible, we're reading a real historic document, well, then we fail to understand the Bible. Let me give you an example. Some time ago, I had an interesting conversation with a woman that went like this. She just read Joshua 4, verse 9. It says, And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Now, here was her question. Are those 12 stones still there? And I said, well, I didn't know, but I said, probably not. And she said, well, then the Bible isn't true. And I was dumbfounded. I mean, the book of Joshua must have been written and completed sometime around 1390 to 1380 B.C. And I said, when it was written, those stones were there. But she said, well, it says that they are still there. Well, oh my. She had no idea what she was reading when she read her Bible. It's an ancient document. And for that reason, her faith had no solid grounding. See, it's never enough to tell our kids, well, that they're sinners, that Christ died for them, and that if they surrender their lives into Christ's hands, their sins will be forgiven. They will receive the presence of the Spirit. They'll be adopted into God's family. They'll have the hope of eternity. See, I get it. That's a glorious message. That's the heart of the gospel. That's everything we're about. But that leads me back to the fellow with a Klingon friend. According to the Star Trek series, you can travel the galaxy. You can bravely go where no one has gone before. You can explore new civilizations in the galaxy. I mean, all that neat stuff that a young mind thinks is fantastic. But there's a great deal of difference between reading fiction and genuine historic literature. See, unless we tell the next generation, well, let me explain it again. 
One time when I was in Jerusalem, it had just been announced, and I heard the announcement, that archaeologists had just discovered a sealed clay jar with writing inside, naming the names of King Hezekiah's advisors. See, the same names that are found in the Bible. See, unless we explain that we're looking at a real historic document that took some 1,600 years to compile, written by some 40 different authors, three languages on three continents, comprising one book. Well, unless we make that matter plain, nobody's going to get it. Unless we explain that archaeology has attested this to be real history, that we have countless manuscripts verifying the authenticity of our documents. See, unless we explain that stuff, that this is God acting in history, well, then people, if they don't know that, won't know the difference between talking about truth and simply talking about something we happen to believe. See, furthermore, this is so important. Unless we explain the development of the revelation from God, we're making a mistake. When I hear people say, oh, you believe that there's just one God? Well, that's your religion. Clearly, if that's what they think, we've failed them. We should immediately say to them after that, did you know there is no monotheism in the entire world that does not take its point of beginning from a man named Abraham? Have you heard about him? Today, one half of the earth's population believes their understanding from God came directly from that one man. He lived some 4,000 years ago. See, unless we explain the historic basis for what we believe, well, they think we're going to be just like the Klingon guy. See, I say all of this because today, in the last study in our study of Abraham, we're going to find that as we go through this study, some narrative, some genealogy, we're going to find history. See, too many of us pass over names of people that we don't know as simply meaningless. Let me explain again. Recently, I had my DNA sample sent to National Geographic to get a scientific analysis of my ancestry. Now, that did tell me something, and it is interesting, but what it misses is what's most important. My DNA report doesn't tell me how every generation came into, into being. Were they married for political reasons, or were they married for religious reasons? Were people conquered and some of the women raped? Do you understand what I'm saying? Without the context of history, we don't understand ourselves or our reality. What the Bible presents us with, among many things, is how God spoke to us in real history and how that wonderful gospel within history came to us. See, once we grasp that, we know instantly that what we're talking about it's not philosophy or religious ideas or people's belief systems. Instead, we're talking about truth, undeniable events in history that changed the world and therefore have changed and fashioned our lives. See, all right, let's complete our study of the life of Abraham. I'm starting to read with Genesis 24, verse 60. Abraham has sent his servant to the house of his nephew, Bethuel, to find a wife for him. He finds his daughter, Rebecca, and arrangements are made to send Rebecca from her home in what is now Iraq to go all the way to what is now Israel. Genesis 24, 60 says, And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. You know, we've been tracing the success of Abraham's servant who has gone to find Abraham's kindred to find a wife for his son. 
And through prayer and through recognizing the providence of God, he has found Rebecca. She, like Abraham and Sarah, has made her decision. She will leave her home and her people group and her ancestral land, and she will set out on a wild journey of faith. And in the end, she will come to worship Abraham's God as she marries Abraham's son, Isaac. God will bless the world through her offspring. And so in anticipation of this, for Abraham's faith was no mystery to his kindred, the family of Bethuel blesses her and wishes the Abrahamic blessing on her. Now to Genesis 24:61 to 67. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on their camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. She became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. In many ways, this is a beautiful story. It's a very different love story than the one that we often hear in the West. For in the West, love comes first, and then, of course, marriage follows. But in this culture, marriage occurs because of an arrangement, and love, if it follows at all, is a great blessing. But in this case, love does follow. The servant of Abraham has been wise in the choosing of a mate for his master's son. I want you to imagine the scene we've just read about. Isaac has been meditating. His heart and mind have been taken up on the Lord his God. Perhaps he's been praying about the role of God in his life as Abraham's son, a role that would bring blessing to the world, to multiply greatly, to inherit the land his father had come to. And perhaps he's praying about his own personal future, his calling and his wife. And as he looks up, perhaps to the horizon, he notices a train of camels approaching. He stands and watches, and from her vantage point, Rebecca sees him. And unlike that funny scene we see in so many movies where a man and woman run towards each other in slow motion on a beach, uh, this meeting is very gracious and far more restrained. Rebecca's first action is to veil herself. Once we see why, we'll see how important that action is. Do you ever wonder how your giving to Back to the Bible Canada makes a difference? Shona said Back to the Bible Canada continues to bring a drifting world back to God's Word. Don't ever change. Kim said, not only do I find the program enjoyable, it goes way beyond that to be a sustaining ministry for my husband and I, keeping us in touch daily with the scriptures. Mark wrote, I'm working through singing the Lord's song in a strange land. It is both encouraging and terribly convicting. I suppose that is what truth always does in our hearts. Jacob said the teaching of Dr. Newfeld is so needed. Thank you for not being afraid to tell us as it says. This is the tip of the iceberg as men, women, young and old tap into the Bible. Resources provided with your support. Thank you and please keep it up. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. I want you to understand what it meant for Sarah to veil herself for once you see it, it's a tender act of first love. 
In that day, unmarried women usually went around unveiled. They were veiled for their wedding. By veiling herself, Rebekah is demonstrating to Isaac that she is his bride. Her mind has been made up. She will be joined together with him. It is her first demonstration of a lifelong commitment to him. You know, perhaps the most tender part of the story is that when Isaac takes Sarah into his mother's tent, remember, his mother is now dead, and Rebekah becomes the mistress in the home, that Isaac finds comfort in her. His heart and her heart are drawn together. No, she's, she's not a mother figure to him. She's his wife, and her role now replaces the role that Sarah once had, the role that Abraham himself will give up and give to his son. Isaac is the man through whom the gospel will come to the world. He now takes the lead. And after these events are recorded, our text now quickly turns back to Abraham himself. I'm reading Genesis 25, verses 1 to 6. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Limomim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. You know, many people unfamiliar with his story might be surprised to hear about this marriage. Remember that Abraham lived well over 30 years after the death of Sarah. But for those who are very familiar with the Bible, you might be a bit confused about the status of this woman named Keturah. The confusion comes about because according to 1 Chronicles 132, Keturah is called Abraham's concubine, and in verse 6, the concubines are Keturah and Hagar, but earlier, Keturah is referred to as Abraham's wife. So what gives? Well, let me explain. Later on in Genesis, a woman named Bilhah will be referred to as both Jacob's concubine and his wife. And so we have an example of this, same dual role elsewhere in the Bible. Now, I personally believe that the answer to this is quite simple. First Chronicles calls Keturah a concubine so that we would not confuse her role in the redemption of the human race. Her children should not be confused with Abraham and Sarah's son. No one can supplant Sarah's unique role in the history of our redemption. We see that clearly as we read about the six sons that Abraham and Keturah have. The first one is named Zimran. Jeremiah later will list the kings of Zimri, and it seems that the descendants of Zimran were a part of the tribes that belonged to Arabia, one of the ancestors of the Arabian people. I notice the fourth son is named Midian. The Midianites occupied the lands east of the Gulf of the Aquaba. You might remember that when Joseph was sold into slavery, that it was Midianite slavers who bought him and sold him to Potiphar. The last son, Shua, might ring a bell for you. You'll remember that one of Job's three friends was a man named Bildad the Shuhite. He clearly is an ancestor of Abraham who was familiar with the God of Abraham, but seriously mistaken about the matter of why Job is suffering. Now, I point all of that out to help us to see real historical persons who live real lives and whose ancestors become well-known and even renowned, some even to the present day. 
So the point is simple. How many sons did Abraham have? And the answer is, he had eight sons, not one. However, Abraham sent seven of them away as he was convinced that of the eight, only Isaac was the child of promise. As Paul will say later in the book of Galatians, the promise does not come by way of the flesh or by natural means. It comes through the promise. Furthermore, sending the other children away shows us that the ultimate child of promise is the descendant of Isaac, who is, of course, Jesus our Lord. And that's my point. Whenever you hear an account of Jesus that depicts him either as a great prophet or a miracle worker, an outstanding preacher, a man with revolutionary ideas who transformed much of the world, well, in this case, you're only considering Jesus from one perspective. Jesus is the fulfillment of a promise, a promise that began 2,000 years before he was born of a virgin. His lineage is exactly in keeping with a promise that was given to Abraham. But of course, even Abraham had a previous promise to his, that a chosen seed would crush the head of Satan. Yeah, that's our faith, a real, historical, developing faith. But this faith did not come about because of one prophet's revelation or one religious thinker's insights, but rather through generations of real history in which God demonstrates that he makes promises and keeps promises. You can investigate the matter. We are Christians today because of the history of our faith, that our history demonstrates the truth of our faith. Now we come to the end of the story. Genesis 25, 7 to 11. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael his sons buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled in Birlahai Roy. Again, notice the real historical record. When the account of Abraham began back in Genesis 12, verse 4, we read then that he was 75 years of age. Now at his death, we realize that he's been a wanderer and a nomad with a fix on the promise of God for a hundred years. That would mean that Abraham was 140 years old when Isaac married Rebekah, and you remember that Isaac was 40 at that time. He was probably 160 when his grandchildren, Jacob and Esau, were born, and he lived until those boys were 15 years of age. And so his life is an extraordinarily long life. But as some of the relief walls in Egypt show, some of the Egyptians of antiquity also had long lifespans like this. But and this is key to the entire account. It's one thing to live a long life. It's quite another thing to have lived life well. You know, the ESV says he died full of years. Another translation says full of days. And some linguists see that phrase, full of years or full of days, as referring to his contentment, or as another Bible teacher put it, filled with inner shalom or filled with peace. That is, when Abraham died, he was satisfied with his life. You know, I know of people who die who are filled with grief because of all the things that they should have done. And that's not so with Abraham. You know, it's not as if he was saying no regrets. I mean, that's not it. Of course, Abraham had regrets. 
There were times when he sinned, and the results of his sin had long-term consequences. Now, no regrets doesn't get at it. Rather, what's expressed here is a satisfied life in God. He had learned from the first moment of faith to trust in God, and he trusted in God's plan for the life that he was given. In the end, his satisfaction reflected that he was satisfied in God and in God's plan for him, and not with what might have been. He was content in what God had for him. You and I should seek the same attitude so that when our time comes, we also can die well. One more matter, a matter I have mentioned before. The text says that Abraham was gathered to his people. That phrase, gathered to his people, is used 10 times in the Old Testament. It always indicates a threefold process. First, a person breathes his last and dies. Second, they're gathered to their people. And third, they're buried. And furthermore, two of the people in the Old Testament that are said to be gathered to their people, that is, Moses and Aaron, were not buried in an ancestral grave at all. See, the phrase gathered to his people, therefore, can't mean they were buried in a communal tomb. It must mean that there are men and women who have walked with God before Abraham, whom Abraham now joined. We know that this is the case. Seth, the son of Adam and Eve, so lived his life that in his days, a great number of men and women began to call upon the Lord. Enoch walked with God and was no more. God took him. Abraham was joined to that great company. And that's what every believer looks forward to at death that we can look back over our lives and say, Lord, I have been satisfied in the life that you have given me. And now in anticipation, I look forward to being included in the great throng that stands before your throne. John, as we conclude this series, I think it's an appropriate question to ask. What do we make of the fact that Abraham died content? Yeah, how important that is. You know, we can't choose the context of our own dying. I mean, some of us uh, will die in pain. Some of us, uh, of course, you know, if Alzheimer's or some other dementia comes into our lives, uh, that's going to be our death experience. Um, However, those things put aside, we can look at God and say, Lord, you are the ones that assigned my days to me, and I am content in you, and I am content in what you have done in my life. I think that should overwhelm us, and it is the life of faith to die well. Thanks so much for joining us today, and remember, join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The legalization of marijuana. Are you ready? Prepared? Do you understand the impact on you, your community, young people? What is a trustworthy biblical perspective? And what's the impact physically, spiritually, socially? In Doubt and In Doubt Live is about connecting today's issues of faith and life with a biblical perspective. Join In Doubt's Isaac Dagno, Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Dr. Lucinda Scott, and Mark Ward, author of Can I Smoke Pot? 
Marijuana in the Light of Scripture, live February 22nd at the Clover Theater in Cloverdale, British Columbia. It's a free event for young adults, so arrive early. Doors open at 6.30, event begins at 7 p.m. And if you can't make it, no worries. The event is being broadcast live on Facebook, and you can submit your questions during the Q&A segment. So, for all the info you need, head to indoubt.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.